Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it's for your sake that I've borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I make sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Those are verses 9 through 13 of Psalm 69, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, March the 18th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look today at the uh, uh, prophecy of, of Jeremiah, and we're in the, um, the fifth chapter today. The verses are five, 1 through 9 in the gospel. We're in John's gospel, chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. And in the uh, letter to the Romans, chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, through chapter 3, verse 18. So the Lord's giving Jeremiah the prophetic word, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Remember the whole prophetic word that comes to Jeremiah begins with, Jeremiah, tell me what you see. And he first sees an almond branch, and then the second time he sees a boiling pot. And so here he's telling him, look, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note. Tell me what you see, Jeremiah. You You need to see well. You need to understand the situation. Search her squares to see if you can find a man one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may partner. He says, just look for one, right? I mean, in in the case of Sodom, what Abraham bargained with God for was to say, hey, if I can find 10 righteous men, will you save the city? And here he's saying, oh, these are my people. Jeremiah, run, go out there and see if you can find an honest man. See if you can find one person, even one, who does righteousness. And if you could do that, then I will save Jerusalem. But the Lord knows there's no one to be found. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. So the, the, the oath that one would take was, as the Lord lives, because he always lives, and so judgment will always be there for a, a falsehood or a misstatement in an oath that follows that. As the Lord lives, then let this be done, or I will do this. And so what he says is, but even though they say that, they take my name as the pledge, and and they're taking God's name in vain for vanity purposes, not in truth. They're swearing falsely, but they put his name on it to add the ring of truth and to get people to trust them. Oh, Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. In other words, what I was saying yesterday about in the in the Revelation, when um, when God ju- is judging the earth and bringing calamity on the earth, that that people are still not turning to Him because they come up with other naturalistic, scientific, whatever explanations for what's actually happening, because they refuse to come and look and see. There's a God. He is just. He is righteous, and He's angry, and He's coming in judgment. And so we deny that. So we come up with alternative explanations for what's going on to avoid the horrible truth about our sinfulness. 
And that's what he's saying here. That's exactly what Jeremiah is saying. That you struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction because they ascribed that to something else. They've made their faces harder than rock. They refuse to repent. And then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense. They don't know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I'll go to the great and I'll speak to them for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. doesn't matter. You know, I thought I'd go to those people who were educated in the law, who devote themselves to the study of God's word. And what I found is, is that they don't care either. The poor have the excuse of not knowing. These people have the, don't have that excuse, but they don't care and they don't follow the law. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn into pieces because their transgressions are many and their apostasies are great. So what God's saying is, is that, that they are all alike going to judgment And is he talking specifically here really about lions, wolves, and leopards? I don't think so. I think he's talking about what's actually going to come, what he's prophesied already, what all these nations will come against Jerusalem. He said, how can I pardon you? I can't even, I can't pardon you. Your children have forsaken me, have sworn by those who are no gods. You didn't raise them up in the way that they should go. You raised them up in another way. You raised them up to value other things. And so that's the problem, is is that they're chasing after these other things and calling them gods, but they're not gods at all. When I fed them to the full, in other words, when, when they had prosperity, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. I mean, we're, he's working us through the Ten Commandments here, where he is their only God. They're to have no idols or images, and said so they, they go after these other gods. Adultery, covetousness, all that stuff is in this passage. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And, and why? Why is he avenging himself on a nation such as this? Well, it's because they were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and they were the ones to make him known. And instead, what they've done is made him a byword among the peoples. They have tossed him behind their backs and don't care. And, and yet the other people outside the land will judge these people and their God in this way. And so their God is the one being judged by the nations, and it's they who have brought disrepute on him. In the gospel, remember Jesus yesterday was, is, is, was laying out the the challenge to them that whatever you see me doing, know it's because I see the Father doing it. So I'm seeing things you're not seeing, and I'm doing things you're not doing. I'm doing them so that you will marvel. I'm doing them so that you'll know. But the reality is, is that that you have to believe in me. And if you reject me, then you've also rejected the one who sent me, the Father. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So whose glory is he looking out for? He's not judging in some human way when those people come against him. He's not judging them as coming against him. No, he sees the reality is, and that the rejection is not the rejection of of him, it's the rejection of the one who sent him, in the same way that all the prophets experience that, in the same way that Jesus, when he tells parables that are intended to point to that rejection of the prophets, that they are angry with him because they believe themselves to be better than their fathers. But what he's saying is, you're no better than them at all. 
In fact, you're worse because you're going to reject not just a prophet sent in the name of God, but, but his son. And so when he says, I hear my judgment is just, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, then what he's saying is, is that I'm not seeing this through human eyes only. I'm judging the way the Father judges. I'm judging based on what he's doing and what I see of him. And so I'm seeking his glory and not my own. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. That's exactly right. And in a a Jewish court of law, it had to be established among two or more witnesses, and it pretty much had to be more than two. Because if you had two witnesses, they could they could agree with they could disagree with each other, and then what are you going to do? And so you need more witnesses than that. But Jesus says, I can't bear witness just by myself. That's not that's not no. It's not just me. Who's telling you these things and telling you who I am? No, no, no. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. If you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So the first sentence there, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. He's talking about the Father. And then you sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. He said, likewise, there's the one who takes away the sin of the world, that he's the Messiah. And he says, look, I don't need the testimony from man for myself. I don't need his testimony because I know the testimony of the Father that that he bears to me. And that's enough for me, but you asked John, and John told you. I'm saying these things so that you may be saved this testimony of John. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So he's already said the Father testifies on my behalf, John testified on my behalf, and then the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So you've got all these witnesses, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom he has sent. It's a powerful, powerful statement to these people that that you've never seen his form, you've never heard his voice. I mean, that's the claim, is that they, the nation, heard his voice there at Sinai. And he says, you don't have your, his word abiding in you, for you don't believe in the one whom he has sent. So, so the, the fact that you don't believe, that's the reverse of everything I've just said. The, the fact that you don't believe, it bears witness about you. So because you've rejected me, you've proven, you've borne witness that you don't have the word of God abiding in you. I have all the proof that I need about who you are, and therefore I can make a judgment about you because of that. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. So there's also this other witness, not just John, not just the Father, not just the works, but the scriptures themselves. He says, bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And this, the fight that Paul continually had to fight, he had to fight against those people he calls super apostles in 2 Corinthians. Um, he had to fight against those who would be 
something in themselves, and they had rejected, not rejected Paul at that point in Corinth, but they had certainly come to look at him a little bit askance, and not as and, and as though, okay, he's not as great as those people. You know, he's very eloquent and, and very powerful in the way that he writes, but when he's among us, you know, we just didn't see that in him. And so it, it's always, you know, okay, somebody coming in their own name and making a big deal of themselves. We had a guy come when we were first starting the denomination in 2000. We had a guy come who... who claimed to have done this, that, and the other thing. Um, and initially, people were like, oh, wow, we got to listen to this guy. And then you started looking around for actual fruit of this stuff rather than just what he says, and it came hard to get. But initially, he, he looked like somebody, and he held himself out to be somebody. But then, and, and people did receive him. And, and I've seen people, I've seen people in the church duped again and again and again because somebody is a charismatic personality, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes only from God? So stop looking horizontally for affirmation and glory. Look to the Father. So stop receiving glory from one another because it's easy to get people to praise you. I mean, you know, it really is. It's, it's not all that difficult. If you set out to be a people pleaser, then you will. Typically, I mean, not everybody, certainly, but it's easy to get that kind of affirmation. But being a people pleaser sometimes puts you in opposition to God because you can't give the hard, the prophetic words to people that you're intended to give. You just keep telling them all is well, all is well. And that was Jeremiah's complaint was to say, you know, have you lied to the people? Have you deceived the people? Because they've been told all is well. And what God says in response is, whoever told them that's a liar. Look around, Jeremiah. Tell me what you see. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Is, is that, that you keep getting affirmation and glory from one another, but the reality is you're being misled by all of that. Do, do not think that I will accuse you, do the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how you will, will you believe my words? In other words, he's telling them, you, you keep hearkening back to Moses as, as your hope because you're, you're in Moses. And you, you know his words and all that, He's, but you're misinterpreting them and you're misunderstanding them because if you understood them correctly, then you would see me and you would receive me. And you would believe in me and you would have life. Same way the woman at the well in Samaria came and received life from Jesus as well. And so now Paul's argument here in the letter to the Romans is, is essentially that, that the only thing that's of value— is the Holy Spirit. The only thing that's of value is the confirmation that the Spirit bears that you've been saved. It, it doesn't have anything to do with being Jew or Gentile. The, the, the law is of Paul's argument is, is if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So it, it you've lost your salvation, essentially, is what Paul's saying. You've, you've lost that thing that should have benefited you because your circumcision obliged you to keep the law. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circum, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, even if he's not circumcised, if he's doing the things that God requires, then I think that becomes circumcision for him. I think that that means that his heart has been 
uh, change to keep the law. Then he who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one's a Jew is not merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You could substitute baptism for circumcision there, and, and it would convict a lot of people who would te- take issue with you because you said baptism didn't save you. Peter says it saves you, but only if you are then obedient. Baptism won't save you in the same way circumcision won't save you. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, his praise being the one who keeps the law. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So you, you can't throw off on the Jews. You can't say that they're not important because he, he said God thought so much of them that he gave the law. So you can't say that, that there's no advantage to being a Jew because there clearly is because they're the people of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is God wrong to be angry with us? No, because I've given you the law. I've told you what to do, and you've ignored it. He said, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So his lie, what he's saying is, is that his lie, if, if, it's, if, if, if Paul is lying about this whole thing, about Jesus being the way, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If God's getting glory through my lie, through my sin, then hey, why should I be condemned for that? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Because it, it, it's slandering the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So there's a value to being a Jew, he says. But are we better off? The answer is no. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He's convicting everybody. He's not convicting, <laughs> convicting Jews there. He's, convict, he's saying this is true of everybody, all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. This is the way it is. We're walking in darkness. We're blind to the things of God. We're not even seeking after him. We, we've forgotten him altogether. We've let everything else take pride of place and preeminence in our lives and in our thoughts and in our hearts, which is the really ugly part. And he says that's the problem. That we've got to get that change. We've got to get that change of heart. It's not a physical thing that makes us different. Uh, it, it's a change of heart. It's, it's a change in us that causes us to desire those things, to desire the things of God rather than to desire things like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we should choose life is Paul's statement. And so he is making the same prophetic judgment against the world both Jews and Gentiles, as Jeremiah could see among his own people. And so where's the hope in that message? Well, the hope in that message is always in the same place. It's in Jesus, and it's in him alone.